The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, we're going to uh, look today at the beginning of the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. And um, for me, I, I think one of the best things to study about the life of Calvin is to look at his actual words as he uh, teaches. So what we've got here is we've got some quotes from Calvin's Institutes. And um, our desire is to read those quotes and try to understand the mind uh, of Calvin as he sought to understand the mind of God. And uh, John Calvin's greatest work was the Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is uh, one of two volumes uh, in that. This is the final edition that he did a few years before he died. If the Lord had extended his life, I think he would have done more editions after. That was constantly expanding, constantly um, developing. Uh, It's a work of systematic theology. And uh, we're going to be looking at it today, um, trying to understand the whole scope of the book and then digging into the first few chapters and trying to see, especially John Calvin, on the knowledge of God the Creator. So that's what we're looking at tonight, and so if you would uh, dig in, I like that picture on the cover, isn't that beautiful? Um, Absolutely beautiful. And uh, Psalm 104 and verse 13, it says, He waters the mountains from his upper chambers, the earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. Turn the page and look at this uh, quote uh, from John Calvin uh, from the Institutes here, and this this gives you a sense of the giftedness, the eloquence uh, of Calvin, and just what a great teacher he was. This is what he wrote. With what clear manifestations his might draws us to contemplate him. Unless perchance it be unknown to us in whose power it lies to sustain this infinite mass of heaven and earth by his word, by his nod alone sometimes to shake heaven with thunderbolts, to burn everything with lightnings, to kindle the air with flashes, sometimes to disturb it with various sorts of storms, then at his pleasure to clear them away in a moment to compel the sea which by its height seems to threaten the earth with continual destruction, to hang as if in mid-air, sometimes to arouse it in a dreadful way with the tumultuous force of winds, sometimes with waves quieted to make it calm again. Isn't that amazing? Just talking about the power of God on display in storms, in the, in the, uh, in the sky, with winds, with rain, with lightning, over the sea, Calvin himself, it seems, never stopped marveling at God's ability to stop the sea from inundating the earth. And, you know, lest you think it could never happen, just read Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and you'll see that it actually could happen. But God has set up this fragile barrier between the sea and the earth called the beach. And it's a fragile little thing and therefore it's really just kind of an astonishing barrier that saves us from complete inundation and drowning. Calvin said, it's not the beach, it's God stopping the ocean from, from just totally swamping us. And so you can see that, you know, that you have these waves that are as high as skyscrapers and then suddenly they get to the, get to the beach and they become t- tame like little lambs and then just kind of drift back out to the sea. Now that's God protection. And that's what Calvin did. What we're going to look at today is um, the beginning of the Institutes and Calvin's uh, natural theology. That's really what it is. Uh, Looking at how nature, how creation testifies to the existence of God and how that testimony 
is essential to our understanding of God. And as we look at the greatness of God in creation, we really can understand ourselves. We can understand uh, our own smallness, really, our own, um, really, by comparison, insignificance compared to God. What I want to do is give you an, a general outline of, of Calvin's Institutes, the four books, and then we're going to dig into the first few chapters and get a sense of that. So just to get some context, what Calvin was trying to do. The book, uh, the book Institutes is, is organized into four books. If you look at uh, pages, well, I guess, two and three and four. Book one is the knowledge of God, the creator. If you turn over to page three. Book two is the knowledge of God, the redeemer in Christ. First disclosed to the fathers under the law and then to us in the gospel. Okay, turn the page and then uh, book three is the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, what benefits come to us from it and what effects follow. And then books four, the external means or aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein. Basically, two main sections, the knowledge of God, the creator, the knowledge of God, the redeemer. Subset of knowledge of God, the redeemer are things like salvation, regeneration, repentance, faith, those kinds of things, justification by faith etc., the Christian life that follows, sanctification, all of that, and the doctrine of the church. That's what really makes up um, uh, the institutes. If you look a little more carefully at the knowledge of God the Creator, book one, it breaks into 18 chapters. We're going to look today, I think, at the first uh, five uh, chapters, um, but I want to give you a sense of the scope of it and the other three books as well. Chapter one, the knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected and how they're interrelated. We're going to talk about that. To know ourselves, you really need to know God. Secondly, what it is to know God and to what purpose the knowledge of Him tends. What does it mean to know God and why should we know Him? Chapter 3, the knowledge of God has been naturally implanted in the minds of men. We're going to talk about that. That's, again, natural theology. The fact that God has revealed Himself in some measure to every single human being on the face of the earth. Chapter 4, this knowledge is either smothered or corrupted partly by ignorance and partly by malice. The fact that that natural knowledge of God doesn't do us any saving good. Uh, the fact as in Romans, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're going to talk about that. Chapter 5, the knowledge of God shines forth in the fashioning of the universe and the continuing government of it. So you can see God in what he's made. As you understand uh, the universe, you can see God. But chapter 6 and we're not going to get to this tonight, but Scripture is needed as guide and teacher for any, anyone who would come to God the Creator. You can't be saved by looking at nature. You can't be saved by looking at the universe. You must have Scripture. Scripture must interpret the universe that we see. Chapter 7, Scripture must be confirmed by the witness of the Spirit. Uh, thus may its authority be established as certain. And it is a wicked falsehood that its credibility depends on the judgment of the church. Now, if you know anything about the 16th century, you know who was uttering that wicked falsehood. It would have been the Roman Catholic Church that said that it was the church that gave birth to the Scripture, not the other way around. And that is ridiculous, isn't it? Isn't it the Scripture that gives birth to the church? As we hear the Word of God and believe it, that's how we become believers. That's how the church even exists, by the Word of God alone. But uh, Calvin arguing against Roman Catholics at that point. Chapter 8, so far as human reason goes... Sufficiently firm proofs are at hand to establish the credibility of Scripture. God has given us enough proof that the Bible is the Word of God. Chapter 9, fanatics abandoning Scripture and flying over to Revelation cast down all the principles of godliness. So these are people that are going for the direct testimony of the Spirit, that kind of thing, the Zwickau prophets, others that were dealing with that. 
uh, and bypassing Scripture for immediate revelation of the, of the uh, Holy Spirit of God. Chapter 10, Scripture to correct all superstition has set the true God alone uh, over against all the gods of the heathen. Chapter 11, it is unlawful to uh, attribute a visible form to God. And generally, whoever sets up idols revolts against the true God. So it's about idolatry. Chapter 12, how God is to be so distinguished from idols that perfect honor may be given to him alone. Chapter 13, in Scripture, from the creation onward, we are taught one essence of God which contains three persons. So the doctrine of the Trinity. Chapter 14, even after the, even in the creation of the universe and of all things, Scripture, by unmistakable marks, distinguishes the true God from false gods. Chapter 15, a discussion of human nature as created, of the faculties of the soul, of the image of God, of free will, and of the original integrity of man's nature. So that's what we would call anthropology, the study of humanity, of human beings. Chapter 16, God by his power nourishes and maintains the world created by him, rules its several parts by his providence. This is the doctrine of providence and the fact that, as I've said in sermons uh, a number of times, God has created a needy universe. Uh, The universe needs him to continue to exist. He did not create an independent universe. How we may apply this doctrine to our greatest benefit, by that he means the doctrine of providence. I think all of us underestimates the significance of the doctrine of providence. The fact that everything around us is given to us by God. That God sustains those things. That God upholds them. That nothing comes to us except by God. And uh, I think that can be a great encouragement to us as we face trials in our lives. Chapter 18. God so uses the works of the ungodly and so bends their minds to carry out his judgment that he remains pure from every stain. A great mystery. But how vital is is it for us to understand that? How God sovereignly overrules the decisions of wicked people to achieve his purposes and his plans and yet maintains himself from all evil. That's book one. Book one. All right. Book two. uh, Quickly, I just gave summaries at this point. The knowledge of God, the Redeemer in Christ, focusing on the work of Christ. First disclosed to the fathers under the law and then to us in the gospel. Okay. The fall in Adam and original sin he, uh, he deals with in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 2, man deprived of freedom of choice and bound over as a slave to sin. Okay. Uh, chapter 3, only damnable things then come from man's corrupt nature. All right. Chapter 4, how God works in men's hearts. How does he redeem us? What does he do? Uh, to save us and to, as we would say, take out the heart of stone and give us the heart of flesh. Chapter 5, refutation of objections commonly put forward in defense of free will. Might be of some interest to us to read that chapter. Uh, Chapter 6, fallen men ought to seek redemption in Christ. Chapter 7, the law was given not to restrain the folk of the old covenant under itself, but to foster hope of salvation in Christ until his coming. We're going to see that in the book of Hebrews. The law wasn't given to save anybody. Perfection could not come by the law. It was impossible. Uh, Chapter 8, explanation of the moral law. That is the Ten Commandments. Chapter 9, Christ, although he was known to the Jews under the law, was at length clearly revealed only in the gospel. Chapter 10, the similarity of the Old and New Testaments. And chapter 11, the difference between the two Testaments. Those are incredibly deep topics and themes. Chapter 12, Christ had to become man in order to fulfill the office of the mediator. We're going to see that very clearly this Sunday in Sunday's sermon on Hebrews 2. How Christ took on a nature, was made like his brothers in every way. 
in order that he might destroy the works of the devil and that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So that's going to be Hebrews. Better to get it from Hebrews 2 than from the Institutes. Amen. John Calvin would say that. Okay, but don't think that he's not getting it from Hebrews and other places as well. Christ had to become a human being in order to uh, be a mediator for us. Christ 13, Christ assumed the true substance of human flesh. Took on true human nature. How the two natures of the mediator make one person. How we understand that. This is what we call Christology. We're we're into the topic of Christology here. Okay, Uh, from anthropology and then... um, you know, the old covenant, then into Christology. Christ's three offices, prophet, priest, and king, and the significance of those. Chapter 16, how Christ has fulfilled the function of redeemer to acquire salvation for us. Christ's death, his resurrection, ascension to heaven are discussed in that chapter. Uh, In chapter 17, then Christ rightly and properly said to have merited God's grace and salvation for us. And based on that kind of thinking, that's why I say we are most certainly saved by works, but they're not our works. They're Christ's. There's nothing wrong with saying that. We are saved by works. Christ's perfect work in obeying the law every day of his life and then his perfect work on the cross and his work in resurrection. These are the works that save us and none of our own. But we are saved by his achievements. All right, so that's book two. Uh, Book three, I just give a quick summary at this point. The way in which we receive the grace of Christ, what benefits come to us from it, and what effects follow. The general topics that Calvin covers are such things as the Spirit's work in us, the topics of faith, of regeneration, of repentance, the topic of indulgences and purgatory, which were hot in the uh, 16th century, not so big for us as Protestants at this point. But the reason they're not so big is that men like Calvin did their work well. And so we can move on from the... um, False teaching of indulgences in purgatory. Uh, the Christian life, what is the nature of the Christian life? Uh, self-denial, uh, cross-bearing, it's big for Calvin and his understanding of the Christian, uh, Christian life. Meditation on the future life, that was a big part of my dissertation on uh, Calvin's eschatology. He just felt that we should spend a lot of time thinking about our future life. Ironically, he also was adamantly against speculation about that. So... Um, Meditate, but be sure you're meditating on some scripture about the future life, that's all. And don't go a, a whit beyond it. And because you just might go beyond it when you read the book of Revelation, don't write a commentary on Revelation. I'm over-speaking myself <laughs> at that point. But uh, at any rate, that's Calvin. But uh, very, very uh, strong on meditation on the future life, but be sure you don't speculate. What is the best use of our time here on earth? How should we then live? Uh, the doctrine of justification by faith, the defense of it, explaining it. Uh, progress from that point of justification on then in the Christian life, what we would call sanctification. The evil of boasting about our works. Uh, Christian freedom. Uh, what is the nature of Christian freedom? Prayer, what he called the chief exercise of our faith. Uh, and then the topics of eternal uh, election and predestination. And then various scriptural proofs of election and the final resurrection. All of that book three. And then finally, book four, the external means or aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein. So there's going to be a lot of church stuff here. This would be ecclesiology, the study of the church. The nature of the true church, um, Calvin discusses, a comparison of the false and true church, Uh, the office and election of ministers, um, church government, both true and false, the origin and growth of the Roman papacy, the corruption of life and doctrine of the church by the Roman papacy, uh, the limitations of church councils, um, all of those things, obviously, he's arguing against his number one debating partner in theology, which would would have been the Roman Catholic view. So um, 
really taking up the cudgels at this point uh, with Luther and other reformers against uh, the Roman uh, Catholic errors uh, at that point. Um, and then church discipline, the need for church discipline, the corrupting influence of vows. These would be such things as monastic vows, uh, the, the vows of priests, of, of clerical celibacy, these kinds of things, and other such vows that he thought had a corrupting influence. Uh, the sacraments, um, both positively and negatively, how we would understand them rightly from the Bible and how the Roman Catholic Church does not understand them rightly. Baptism, and then this one, a chapter on how infant baptism best accords with Christ's institution. There it is, right there on the paper. And you can read about how Calvin defended infant baptism poorly. Um, but at any rate, um, in my opinion, hey, I'm, I don't know if I'm surrounded by any pedo baptists here, but uh, at any rate, the Lord's Supper then, how to understand it properly, the profaning of the Lord's Supper by the papal mass and how uh, it had been twisted by the mass. And then the five other ceremonies commonly called sacraments, uh, how they should be understood, and then finally civil government. I mean, you can imagine that Calvin would have gone beyond these topics if he had been given time. Uh, if you were to compare that to the first institutes that he wrote, um, it doesn't even compare. That's, uh, he's just going through the uh, Apostles' Creed, I think, uh, line by line, and just giving some simple understanding of it. So there it is. There's the scope of it. Yeah, so, go ahead. So I, I didn't see God's attributes. Mm -hmm. Did you sprinkle that on or just not? Yeah, it's sprinkled. I mean, it's going it, to be almost in every, every paragraph, some aspect of God, his goodness, his mercy, his power, his sovereignty. You're going to find it, but there isn't a concentrated you know, heading on that. So that would be other theologians. Good question. That would have, um, you know, would have picked that up. All right. So I just wanted to do that for you, just give you a sense of the scope of systematic theology as John Calvin saw it and uh, the various topics. I think it's beneficial to look at a table of contents of a good systematic theology, you know, and just kind of almost not memorize it, but really be very familiar with the roadmap. These are the topics of theology. Yes. You know, I haven't looked at Calvin on infant baptism in a while. I wasn't persuaded the first time I read it, so I kind of left it behind. But uh, I'd like to look at it again. I mean, it is a daunting thing to realize just the, the intellectual heavyweights that are on the other side of the bar on that one. Circumcision, yeah. Unity of God's work across the, across the covenants, God, you know, covenant kind of language, um, that type of thing. So that's, you know, that's what they do. And, and really, I mean, he does put his finger on the key issue of the uh, continuity and the change between the covenants. He recognized that there's continuity and that there's change. Um, where, you know, the Pado baptists I think, get messed up is, is to not understand the, the discontinuity on that. Yes. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, that's, no. We were talking to a lady yesterday. I was really amazed. I mean, no, that's a doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That's a false teaching. Yeah, that, that, infant baptism. Yeah, the Catholic view of infant baptism would be different than the Protestant view of infant yeah. baptism. You know, they again, it's it's uh, concerning. You know, the doctrine of original sin. I didn't even realize it. But you know, isn't that the way it is with Roman Catholic? You know, you don't have to realize it. You just have to have it done. And, and, you know, when you find yourself in heaven afterwards, be grateful you were a Catholic. That's kind of how that works. There's not the need to understand and believe. I mean, the proof of that is, is the, the Mass in Latin for centuries and centuries and centuries. Were they really seeking the understanding of the people that came? No. No. Huh? Oh, yeah. Hearing of the word. 
hearing of the word and the preaching of the word. And generally, you know, in a good Presbyterian church, it's going to be, you know, um, they'll have maybe confirmation later on and, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's a, it's a tension. It's an issue. So it's just kind of raised a constant reminder of everybody make sure you're regenerated, you know. But. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just because you're baptized didn't mean you were going to heaven. They, they, didn't, they didn't teach that. You know, and so, yeah, that's, that's the issue. They, they believed rightly about justification by faith through the hearing of the word and the gospel, et cetera. They just they didn't link that to baptism at that point. So, again, you know, I, I think it's, in my opinion, a weakness, uh, but all of us have, have blind spots. Everybody does. And I think, to me, it's actually very helpful to study how people like this defended infant baptism. Um, and uh, in, in my opinion, it's, it's wrong. Um, doesn't mean that, that it is wrong. It's just my opinion. Um, but I, I think that, that it's, it's hard for me to believe in something that has such poor scriptural support. But let's, let's just move on. Let's dig in now to the be- beginning of the book. and I mean, even literally to the first statement in the book. This is a very famous statement by Calvin. Uh, the opening statement here in Institutes chapter 1, book 1, you know, uh, book 1, chapter 1, paragraph 1, statement 1, says this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So that really is what theology is about. We're trying to understand God and we're trying to understand ourselves. So what do we learn about God? Calvin consistently brings his readers face to face with the infinite greatness of God's person, his holiness, his power, his sovereignty over all the universe, his goodness. Calvin says it's only by gazing at the person of God as revealed in scripture and in nature that we can see ourselves rightly. So what do we learn about ourselves? Who are we? Well, only by looking at the greatness and holiness of God can we see ourselves rightly, especially given our depravity and our pride. He wrote this. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. Thus, not only will we in fasting and hungering seek thence what we lack, but in being aroused by fear, we shall learn humility. Now, Calvin in that whole paragraph talks about the misery of life in this sinful world. And the misery of life, just how wretched it is, should push you to look upward to God. It should push you to look away from yourself and look away from, um, uh, from your own righteousness. Uh, top of page five. This is again Calvin in that first section. For as a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, our shameful nakedness, exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good and purity of righteousness They rest in the Lord alone. So in other words, we're not looking inward and finding an essential basic goodness here. Not at all. We're looking inward and finding the need for a savior. That's what what we're looking at. Does Calvin overstate himself here, do you think? Well, you're all just a bunch of Calvinists is what you are, you know. You know, we've gone too far. I think, amen. I, I think as you read the scripture and as you just look at your own life, I think this is true, isn't it? This is true. Could any one of us say rightly, you know, any good thing that's found in me was worked in there by God through Jesus Christ. And I think we know that and we know it uh, very much the case as time goes on. 
I don't think he overstates at all. So in other words, what is he saying? You want to know yourself, get to know God. That's what he's saying. You want to know who you are, then study God. And then you'll find out who you are. And uh, as you find out who you are, what's so beautiful is you'll also find out who you will be someday by studying God. That's the encouragement. See, total depravity is only part of the story. How about glorification in Christ as well? But uh, only those who, I think, come to a realization of their sinfulness will ever be glorified. So the whole thing is really a study of God in the end. So nearly all the wisdom that, that, uh, that we possess, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so we need to study God to know who we are. Uh, by the way, you'll see no need whatsoever for changing your life or yourself until you see God and his holiness. And why? Because in your pride, you'll flatter yourself that you're better than you are and the problems really aren't as big as they really are and that you, you're doing just fine and you can make it on your own. And that's what human beings naturally do. So it's really a vision of God in the word of God that causes you to yearn for a savior. And I think that's part of the gospel, isn't it? That's why I really think that, that one of the best parts of, of, of preaching the gospel, of evangelism, is, is worship, that we need to explain the greatness of our God. Just, just talk about him. That's why in that little laminated track that I did some time ago, or that gospel outline, God, Man, Christ Response, we start with God the creator, God the king, God the lawgiver, God the judge. Let's talk about God for a while. And as you, as you just see the greatness of God, then it's not going to be long. It's like, oh boy, you know, I, <laughs> I can't stand before such a being as that. And that's a good, a good thought to come to. Okay, so chapter one, how the knowledge of God and of ourselves are connected and interrelated. Well, without knowledge of God, we really cannot know ourselves. Calvin wrote this. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. So this is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but the basis, the, the meditation, isn't you. You're not meditating on yourself. It's really as you meditate on the holiness and the purity of God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the next thought is, but in me there's darkness. That's the best one-two step that there is. In God there's nothing but beauty and holiness and purity and rightness. But in me there's this world of evil. That's uh, the best order. God alone is the standard uh, for humanity. Only by comparing ourselves to him can we rightly assess ourselves. Calvin said this, as long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. So God is the standard. We were created to be like God. We were created in the image of God. And in the ways that we are supposed to be like him, obviously there are attributes, what we would call the incommunicable attributes. We're not, those don't connect to us. Um, But there are some that do. And so God is the straight edge, said Calvin. He's the standard. And so when you look to God uh, and then you see yourself, then it's a a a true revelation of ourselves. All right, the straight edge. Uh, then man before God's majesty. He says this, hence that dread and wonder with which scripture commonly presents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. 
Thus it comes about that we see men who in his absence normally remained firm and constant, but who when he manifests his glory are so shaken and struck dumb as to be laid low by the dread of death are in fact overwhelmed by it and almost annihilated. So there's a sense of dread that comes over a human heart when you come in the presence of God. Do you see any evidence of this in Scripture? People who come into the in, in encounter with God and they're overcome with fear. Book of Daniel, angels come and Daniel's trembling, he can barely breathe. John? Isaiah 6, woe is me, I'm ruined. Any others? Job. I'm sorry? The Roman jailer. Okay, which, I'm sorry, which one? Okay, all right, yeah. Yeah, Philippians, in, yes, in, in, in Philippi, yes. Trembling. Moses, yeah. And then again um, at, at Mount Sinai. You know, it says in, in Hebrews 12, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am overcome with fear. You know, and that's Moses, you know, and, and just God made Moses afraid at Sinai. I mean, that's significant. Meditate on that. God sought to make Moses afraid at Sinai. It wasn't an accident. Oh, Moses, I didn't mean you. <laughs> everybody else, but not you. No, I mean everybody. Fear of fear of God. So this is what Calvin's saying. Hence that dread that comes over. Yes, Sean. No, he actually talks about that. He says, do not fear, because the fear of the Lord has come upon you to keep you from sinning. So if you put all that together, then fearing, you need fear nothing. You see how that works? Andy and I were talking about uh, Nehemiah 8. Remember, we we're talking about the weeping that came on the Jews as they uh, heard the law read as after the wall had been built. And uh, we were discussing that weeping and then how... Was it Ezra that said, don't weep? Andy, you know the text better than I. But. Yeah, so basically it's the same thing. Weeping, you don't need to weep. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay? So there is this appropriate dread, appropriate weeping, you know, and then moved out of that then into an eternity of bliss and joy. I was talking to Andy in that hotel room. We were just saying basically... That's how, a picture of Judgment Day, how then he wipes every tear from our eyes and we'll weep no more ever again. Yes, Susan. Um, does Calvin have, did he discuss how we can be confronted by our own evil, I guess by other people? For instance, I'm thinking of Saul who walked Stephen killed and yet I think so. That's a good point. I mean, when he said in Acts uh, 26, I think the testimony that he gave there, he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so I think the way Stephen died, I think that that set something in in Saul Saul's heart, Paul's heart, you know, that led him to his conversion. So, yeah, I think, and, and I, I guess it's just unhealthy for me to consider that this is only pre-justification for us. In other words, that we just don't ever fear God like this ever again after we're saved. I just don't think that's true. I th- okay. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what are you referring to? Uh, when John, he's... as a believer, okay. he's on Patmos. He, he sure. straight away and he, he has this fear. Yeah, powerful, powerful. I think it's healthy. And I just don't think it's going to be any place, there's any place for it in heaven. But I think there's very much a place for it now. 
And so, I, you know, I, I think that's, and it's actually totally changed the way I'm going to begin the sermon on Sunday, and I'm not going to do it now because you're a healthy percentage of the <laughs> congregation. So if I give it away now, it won't be the same. It's like, I already heard him say that on Wednesday. So I'm not going to say anything. Um, but there is definitely an issue of fear in Hebrews 2 and, uh, you know, how the fear is removed. And so I want to, I want to talk about that. But, but, you know, there's just, there's just a fear that the Lord works. And, and so I think he was seeking to make Moses afraid at Sinai. And I think, you know, he, uh, uh, it's, it's just appropriate. Uh, hence, that's what, uh, Calvin's saying. Hence that dread and wonder whenever we come into the, into the presence of God. And, and Calvin's saying this is a good thing. You know, it's a good thing for you to feel this. All right. Chapter two, what it is to know God and to what purpose the knowledge of him tends. Okay, first of all, he deals with that uh, issue of knowing God and he says piety is required to know God properly. And he defines piety as that reverence joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. Let me say that again. Piety, the piety he has in mind here, is that reverence or a sense of the fear of God joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. So I stuck Psalm 103 in here. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. All right, as you think about the benefits of God. So benefits are big for Calvin at this point. Basically, in effect, what he's going to do is say every good thing we have in this world comes from God. And he ought to be thanked for it. So it's not just dread and terror. There should be a sense of love and gratitude to this God who's given us everything. That's what he's getting at. And without that beautiful mingling of reverence, fear, fear of the Lord, and love, affection, attraction, you cannot know God properly. That's, that is, that's not the way you, you can't know God without that piety. So it's not enough, says Calvin, just to know that God exists. That's not enough. But we must love and reverence him for all the rich blessings he gives to his creation. And we must seek no good except from him and him alone. That's a big, big statement. All right. The problem in our lives comes when we seek good, but not from God. That is that's idolatry is what it is. When when you find some pocket of honey or whatever that, you know, God didn't give but you want it. What is that then eating from the tree again? Isn't that what it is? You're going after something that's going to make you happy and you know it's not in the hand of God. That's all I would say 100% of the problems in our lives come from that. Seeking something good, but not from God. And, and, you know, isn't that what Satan was holding out to Eve saying, you know, there's something good here. God's holding out on you. And if you would just take matters in your own hands, and be in charge of your own happiness, you'll do better. And isn't what a lie that is. What a lie. I mean, who knows better what will make you happy than God who made you, right? But it's we just get lied to again and again. We think there is a way to find something good that isn't in God's hand. And so that's what Calvin's saying. We must seek no good except from him and him alone. Calvin wrote this. This I take to mean that not only does he sustain this universe as he once founded it by his boundless might, regulate it by his wisdom, preserve it by his goodness, and especially rule mankind by his righteousness and judgment, bear with it in his mercy, watch over it by his protection, but also that no drop will be found either of wisdom and light or of righteousness or power or rectitude or of genuine truth, which does not flow from him. There's no independent source. It's not coming from anyone else. 
and of which he is not the cause. Thus, we may learn to await and seek all these things from him and thankfully to ascribe to him once received, ascribe them, sorry, once received to him. That's a healthy life. All of these benefits come from God. And by the way, notice the number of attributes there are sprinkled through that paragraph. I mean, look at them all. Uh, What do we have? Might, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, judgment, mercy. Um, You know, all of those things. So he's just sprinkling. You're just getting to know God as you read these things. It's amazing. All right, secondly, knowledge of God involves trust and reverence. Uh, He says under this heading, it is wicked corruption not to serve God fully. One of the things about Calvin is just words like or phrases like wicked corruption. You know, it just does you good. You know, you read that and it's like, well, I mean, that's a bit much, isn't it? No, it isn't. That's what it is. If you don't serve God fully, you're wickedly corrupt and you ought to repent. So, I, I mean, it's just it's bracing, but it's it's true. He wrote this for how can the thought of God penetrate your mind without your realizing immediately that since you are his handiwork, you have been made over and bound to his command by right of creation that you owe your life to him, that whatever you undertake, whatever you do ought to be ascribed to him. If this be so, it now assuredly follows that your life is wickedly corrupt unless it be disposed to his service, seeing that his will ought for us to be the law by which we live. In other words, you ought to be serving him every moment of your of your existence. That's the reason why he created you, is to serve him. And so we ought to avoid that wicked corruption that seeks an independent, you know, life. We're not serving God. Uh, yeah, go ahead. They are there. I don't know that he put them there. I'd need to find that out. That's a work of a, of a historian. But um, in my, my edition, you can just see them. They, they, they just sprinkle them, you know, all over the place, you know, footnote, you know, such and such, et cetera. You know, sometimes there are brackets like, I don't know, I just hope you can look at it. But, you know, they bracket First Corinthians 13, 3 or something like that. By the way, scripture verses were new in Calvin's lifetime. They didn't exist before Calvin. The chapters existed a century before Calvin, but the verses in his lifetime, they were newfangled things, all right? (laughs) Uh, You know, seriously, if you read Luther, you're not seeing verses. You'll see just the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, somewhere in 1 Corinthians 13. So, um, they, huh? I don't know. I I, I haven't studied that, but I just, some untalented. <laughs> there are some odd moments of versification, no doubt about that. There's no no doubt about that. But I still think they did the church a good service. I, I think they're they're generally helpful. You know, there's one in Colossians that's right in the middle. Uh, Colossians one, great endurance and joyfully giving thanks. So it's just that you know, right across joyfully giving thanks. You know, but you had to. I mean, those Pauline sentences are so long. You're going to have to break them up right in the middle of a thought anyway. So what can you do? Um, I mean, would you like it if one verse were like 16, 20, you know, that's, so they had to chop it up, but there it is. Let's, uh, well, let's keep moving. All right. So um, the second part that he gives us there, a pious mind does not dream up for itself any God it pleases. All right. Rather, a pious mind seeks the God that really exists and learns to rest in him alone. It thus recognizes, says Calvin, it thus recognizes God because it knows that he governs all things and trusts that he is its guide and protector, therefore giving itself over completely to trust in him. This then is the essence of true religion, to love God as he is and fear him. 
Calvin wrote, this mind restrains itself from sinning. This is a very powerful paragraph, by the way. This mind restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father. It worships and adores Him as Lord. Even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending Him alone. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? Not just because you might get caught, not just because you might be punished, but because it's evil. It's against the nature of God. That's the way you, you would think. Okay. I mean, really, I think it's a measure of the maturity of a Christian to know that you are completely forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and to hate sin with all your might and fight against it with everything that you have by the power of the Spirit every day of your life. Those two things together are health. All right, it means you understand justification by faith apart from works. All right, just by the by the work of Christ, you're forgiven completely. And by the power of the indwelling spirit, you're fighting sin every day and not giving into it for a moment because it's evil. Those are the, that's the combination we're seeking. Okay? Uh, this is the essence of true religion. All right, chapter 3. The knowledge of God has been naturally implanted in the minds of men. All right, what is the char- character of this natural endowment? All right, Calvin wrote this. There is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. So we've seen this, uh, Romans 1, 20 and 21, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, see that? They knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Calvin wrote, There is no nation so barbarous, no people so savage, that they have not a deep-seated conviction that there is a God. God actually continues, continually renews this natural endowment with repeated encounters with him through creation. Calvin wrote this, to prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Listen to this, ever renewing its memory, he repeatedly sheds fresh drops. So like he keeps dropping his existence into the minds of atheists, into the minds of, of idolaters and pagans in remote areas. Just, I'm here, I exist, I'm real, I'm here. And, and that thought just keeps coming. It's not just one time. But it's again and again and again, thoughts pop in their mind as they see something in nature that reminds them there is a God. And uh, it doesn't save any of them. Keep that in mind. They're just condemned by it. They are, Romans 1, without excuse. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a clear example of the Romans 1 suppression in unrighteousness. You're holding it down, literally, is what the Greek says. Holding the truth in unrighteousness. Because there's this force on you toward, there. oh, but there is a God. Isn't it obvious that there's a God? They have to, they have to hold it down in unrighteousness. You know, and I think atheism is a learned thing. You have to learn it. 
You have to you have to be trained in it, and it's a language you learn, and it's taught. It's taught, okay, to them. Yeah, uh, it is. It is absolutely. Uh, religion itself is no arbitrary invention. This was a very striking statement. I remember the first time I read this, I was in seminary, and I thought, man, this is incredible. Calvin wrote this five centuries before, and look, listen to what he says. Therefore, it is utterly vain. For some men to say, listen to this, that religion was invented by the subtlety and craft of a few to hold the simple folk in thrall by this device and that those very persons who originated the worship of God for others did not in the least believe that any God existed. What, you know what he's getting at here is a religion is just for a power thing, for money and all that. There's no reality to it. It's a bunch of hypocrites who are holding people down, crushing them and getting money from them. To help you realize that these thoughts are still around, I've got, given you a couple of quotes here, one from Thomas Jefferson and uh, one from Mark, or a couple from Mark Twain. I found an, uh, another one by George Carlin, which is pretty close to unprintable. Um, but it's the, well, actually it is unprintable. But at any rate, um, same thing. He's deceased now, by the way, so he knows the truth of it. Um, but but the, the, fact, the fact is, you know, it's the same thing. Religion is crafted by people to control others and get money from them. And you know why they think this way? Because that's the way they think about life. They have an Esau mind. And they think, therefore, the priests are Esau's just like they are. They're just using religion to do what they want to do by other means. You know, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. This uh, Thomas Jefferson said this, My opinion is uh, that there would never have been an infidel if there had never been a priest. <laughs> the artificial structures they have built on the purest of all moral systems for the purpose of deriving from it pence and power, that's money and control, revolts those who think for themselves, such as Thomas Jefferson, for example, revolts those who think for themselves and who read in that system only what is really there. Do you, do you not see the arrogance dripping from that paragraph? Wasn't he, <laughs> he was an atheist, really. I mean, I, I don't think he believed that anything was endowed by its creator with, you know, whatever. That was the language of the day. I mean, you, all you have to do is read enough Thomas Jefferson quotes and you'll be convinced of what I'm saying. Just read it. Either that or he just was very, a very inconsistent atheist. Sometimes atheist, sometimes deist. I'm just saying it's, it's... He basically believed he was the only member of his sect. All right? <laughs> I'm, I'm part of a sect and I'm the only one in it. That's basically what he said. So there it is. Um, Mark Twain said this concentration of power in a political machine is bad and an established church is only a political machine. It was invented for that. It is nursed, cradled, preserved for that. It is an enemy to human liberty and does no good, which it could not do better in a split up and scattered condition. And then Mark Twain, I like this one. The gods offer no rewards for intellect. There was never one yet that showed any interest in it. So in other words, if you have half a brain, you're not going to believe in any of this stuff. All right. Well, anyway, Calvin had it nailed before these folks ever drew breath, um, you know, because people were saying the same things in his day. I mean, there really is nothing new under the sun. All right. Thirdly, actual godlessness is impossible. I mean, frankly, when you go to one of these atheist.com sites and you read like 30 or 40 or 50 quotes from Jefferson and Twain, doesn't it start to make you wonder? Spending an awful lot of time talking about what doesn't exist. That's a bit odd, don't you think? I mean, the effort you have to put out to suppress the truth and unrighteousness is really quite pitiable. 
I mean, to have to work that hard. Well, Calvin just goes right to it and says there really is no such thing as true godlessness. All right, this is what he said. Men of sound judgment will always be sure that a sense of divinity which can never be effaced is engraved upon men's minds. Indeed, the perversity of the impious who, th- who though they struggle furiously, that's what I'm talking about, they struggle furiously, are unable to extricate themselves from the fear of God is abundant testimony that this conviction, namely that there is some God, is naturally inborn in all and is fixed deep within, as it were, in the very marrow. Chapter 4. This knowledge is either smothered or corrupted, partly by ignorance, partly by malice. Again, Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. We've already quoted it. They're going to hold it down. They do it through, for example, superstition. Calvin wrote, as experience shows, God has sown a seed of religion in all men. But scarcely one man in a hundred is met with, is met with who fosters it once received in his heart. And none in whom it ripens, much less shows fruit in season, Psalm 1.3. Besides, while some may evaporate in their own superstitions and others deliberately and wickedly desert God, yet all degenerate from the true knowledge of him. And so it happens that no real piety remains in the world. In other words, the natural religion isn't saving anybody. This knowledge of God that he put in human hearts doesn't save them. It doesn't make it. It it, it can't last. It gets corrupted. It gets changed to superstition. It gets worked over into idolatry, but it doesn't end up in the true, true worship of God. That's what he's saying. There is a conscious turning away from God. David said, fools say in their hearts there is no God. These fools then harden their own hearts by insolent and habitual sinning, seeking to drive away any remembrance of the true God. They assume that if he exists, he is shut up idle in heaven. Now, I I think that's interesting what Calvin says about God's idleness. That's what he says. Now, there is nothing less in accord with God's nature than for him to cast off the government of the universe and abandon it to fortune and to be blind to the wicked deeds of men so that they may lust unpunished. In other words, that that is just so opposite from the God of the Bible. He is incredibly active in all those things. He is not idle. Accordingly, then, whoever heedlessly indulges himself, his fear of heavenly judgment extinguished, denies that there is a God. Uh, We are not to fashion God after our own whim, says Calvin. Thus is overthrown that vain defense with which many are wont to gloss over their superstition. For they think that any zeal for religion, however preposterous, is sufficient. (laughs) But they do not realize that true religion ought to be conformed to God's will as to a universal rule, that God ever remains like himself and is not a specter or phantasm to be transformed according to anyone's whim. I mean, it would be hard to supersede the zeal shown by the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, don't you think? I mean, they're dancing for hours, they're cutting themselves, they're bleeding themselves and all that. We don't show that kind of zeal for Jesus that they showed for Baal. Um, But what Calvin's saying here is that these folks suppose that any kind of effort or zeal shown in religion will be satisfying to God. And he says, however preposterous. Well, they're really making up their religion in their own minds. It is a preposterous religion. These are preposterous things. Like you look at idols and they're, what, what's Dagon, half fish and half man, these kinds of things. Where do they come up with these things? You know, the image of God made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Preposterous, really. But yet this is what they exert themselves to. In idolatry. Then there's hypocrisy. Sinners are sometimes brought to a slavish fear of the true God and of his terrible judgments. 
They dread God's judgments, even to the point of loathing. They wage war against God as they are able, and then they surrender in sullen outward forms of religion. Calvin wrote, but while they know that his inescapable power hangs over them because they can neither do away with it nor flee from it, they recoil from it in dread. And so, lest they should everywhere seem to despise him whose majesty weighs upon them, they perform some semblance of religion. So at this point, these folks perhaps are afraid of judgment. They're afraid of dying, afraid of going to hell maybe. And so they're going to throw God some religion while they continue to live, you know, wicked lives. Um, as though God could be so easily bought off. This is ultimately then nominalism. It is hypocrisy, Calvin wrote. For where they ought to have remained consistently obedient throughout life, they boldly rebel against him in almost all their deeds and are zealous to placate him uh, merely with a few paltry sacrifices. Where they ought to serve him in sanctity of life and integrity of heart, they trump up frivolous trifles and worthless little observances with which to win his favor. Nay, more, with greater license, they sluggishly lie in their own filth because they are confident that they can perform their duty toward him by ridiculous acts of expiation. So in other words, they get even bolder in sin because now they're doing some religion. And so they can pay for it. Yes, Sean? I think so. But, I mean, the words really extend to any pagan religion as well, you know? Because he's really saying this is going on all over the world. Natural revelation happens in every human heart. So wherever you go, you find religion. I mean, if you go to the aborigines of some country, you're going to find some religious system there. You're not going to find atheism. You're going to find some religion. So they're going to be doing something while they continue to violate God's moral laws. And finally, chapter 5, the knowledge of God shines forth in the fashioning of the universe and his continuing government of it. Uh, Calvin says, the clarity of God's self-disclosure strips us of every excuse. God, he says, the final goal of everyone's existence is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, John 17, 3. Therefore, God made this knowledge readily, abundantly available to everyone. Like uh, Paul in preaching, I think in Acts 14 says, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Okay, so, you know, I actually think that's Acts 17. But, you know, he's, he's preaching. He's saying he's right there. He's not left himself without a testimony. He's given us all of these good things. God's right there. And it's obvious in the whole workmanship of the universe, Calvin wrote. As a consequence, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. Indeed, his essence is incomprehensible. Hence, his divineness far escapes all human perception. But upon his individual works, he has engraved unmistakable marks of his glory, so clear and so prominent that even unlettered and stupid folk cannot plead the excuse of, ex of ignorance. So again, this is just unfolding Romans chapter 1. God has woven his divine power, his attributes in creation. Men are without excuse, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and they go off into gross idolatry. It's Romans chapter 1. That's what he's giving us there. Romans 1 and Psalm 19 both teach the same thing. The next two chapters, which I haven't unfolded here, are uh, that Scripture is needed as guide and teacher for anyone who would come to God the Creator. It makes sense that that's where he's heading, right? Because he's totally ravaged natural theology as being of any help to us. So what, are we helpless? Is there no answer? No, there is an answer. Special revelation, Scripture comes, the Gospel comes and saves us. But he's just unfolding what God has said in Romans here. And then chapter 7, Scripture must be confirmed by the witness of the Spirit 
Thus may its authority be established as certain, and it is a wicked falsehood that its credibility depends on the judgment of the church. Okay. Well, we have time for maybe one question, 728. Any thoughts, questions about this? Yes, Susie. that it does line up with that. I think that that when our conscience is seared, you know, we aren't aware of, of that, and that I think Scripture uh, covers that as well. Um, but I think Calvin's just being faithful to what Paul wrote in Romans 1. He says this is, this is what we did. We knew that there was a God. At the end of Romans 1, he says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. It's like, well, I didn't know that. Well, Paul says you did. Paul says we did. So it could be that that's part of what we're subconsciously holding down. What I think what Calvin's saying here is we really didn't know ourselves. And I actually don't think we even still know ourselves. I think we're learning ourselves. And so if, if it says, although they knew God, well, then they knew God in some way. And if it says they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, we just have to go with what Paul wrote instead of what we may feel or think about our, our thoughts, our experiences, etc. What Calvin's doing is he's just unfolding it and explaining how it works, not just in the Roman Catholic system, let's say, but also in pagan religions. Final comment or thought? Yes. This might seem somewhat arbitrary, but in my, uh, I, did, I did some some work in licensed professional counseling degree before I transferred to a seminary, and uh, one of our studies that we undertook was a survey of children in Japan during the 80s asked all of these children, I think, under the age of six, if they believed that uh, God created them and loved them? And the overwhelming answer was yes. Mm-hmm. And the big sort of thing, hoopla, was well, these children shouldn't know about God. We, we're all atheists here. How is mm-hmm. it possible? I don't know if that it's has any bearing on, on this, um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, it is. Oh, it's very, very interesting. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the study we've had tonight. Thank you for the work that Calvin did in explaining natural theology. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would know you better. We know that the clearest truths, uh, spiritual truths, come to us from the words of Scripture. Um, we don't get it from looking at a pine tree or looking at the foliage, the changing foliage, or, or any of the natural beauty that we see around us, as great as it is. Um, but uh, that is just the backdrop, what Calvin called the theater of God's glory. Um, it's there, but it's the Scripture that makes it plain and clear. So I thank you uh, for this evening. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I pray that you'd help us to love you more and serve you more faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. 
We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.